0: Hello, Health Equity Squad. I hope you've been well. Welcome to Practicing Health Equity. I am your host and guide, Matt Kastner. In this season of Practicing Health Equity, we are exploring the question, why should we care about health equity? A journey I am calling the headwaters. The headwaters are the land where a river starts, and this question is where this podcast starts. So with that, let's begin. This week, we will be covering libertarianism. In my mind, this might be the most important episode of the season. From my view, modern American philosophy rests on three main legs, as explained in Michael Sandel's book, Justice. Utilitarianism, which we've discussed over the last two episodes, egalitarianism, which we'll be discussing next, and libertarianism, which we're discussing today. Speaking generally, the dominant historic moral viewpoint of public health has been utilitarianism. And recent efforts that some might call woke find many of their roots somewhere in egalitarian thought. In public health discourse, libertarianism can be an afterthought, or maybe it's only mentioned in the context of informed consent. This is a theme we'll explore later with one of our guests. So why is this the most important episode of the season? If you're a public health nerd or passionate about health equity, many of the arguments a libertarian makes are in your blind spot. One of the themes I will keep coming back to in this season is the importance of being able to navigate a morally pluralistic reality. Libertarianism is a core part of American identity. I'm sure you remember that old Patrick Henry chestnut, give me liberty or give me death. To give a brief explanation of what libertarianism is, we will fire up the oversimplicator. If this is your first episode with us, the oversimplicator is a very real, not-fake machine that uses only the finest cutting-edge vacuum tube technology. Using three dials, the oversimplicator creates a parallel dimension based solely on the philosophy we are considering. At the end of the episode, the oversimplicator will print out a conception of health justice based in that reality. So this week, for libertarianism, we'll turn the do knob to maximize, the what knob to freedom, And the who knob to individual so we are maximizing freedom at the individual level let's see what happens and to tell us about this world of libertarianism i'm really excited to have two folks talk with us first we'll talk to dr jess flanagan from the university of richmond and michael cannon from the cato institute hi jess
1: hi my name is jess flanagan and i am a bioethicist teaching at the university of richmond where i teach ethical decision-making in healthcare, leadership ethics, and critical thinking. My research is about public health ethics and clinical ethics, but I also have an interest in distributive justice and the ethics of social norms.
0: Could you tell us a brief story about how you got where you are?
1: Well, I was in grad school at the time studying political philosophy, and I think that a lot of questions in bioethics People will think that it's more of a clinical question when it actually, the issues that you learn about when you're learning about political philosophy are very relevant. So questions about distributive justice, consent, autonomy, what the law should be, political authority, these types of questions. Around the time that I was studying all of these questions, I was TAing for a class with Peter Singer, which is a practical ethics class. And so I was reading all of these bioethics cases. And then also around that time, I was pregnant and I had a baby. and That was, you know, a very intensive experience with the medical system um, that I was not familiar with. And also my grandfather was sick and he died around that time. And so I really got a lot of exposure during that period of grad school to end of life care, beginning of life care, and all the philosophical issues related to the health system. And that really was what made me think that that was an interesting approach to kind of take the tools of political philosophy and apply them to clinical questions, medicine, questions about drugs and prescribing. So my first paper was about prescription drug requirements and whether people had rights of self-medication to access prescription drugs without getting a permission slip from a doctor. And that really set me on this path of researching pharmaceutical regulation, prescribing guidelines, addiction, those types of questions. And that went into my first book. And since then, yeah, I really am very interested in public health ethics. So I've just continued to write about a lot of things related to the ethics of public health, the ideology of public health, the limits of authority in public health, addiction, those types of questions.
0: Awesome. And how did you come to be a libertarian as opposed to some other moral view of the world?
1: Um, I mean, probably the way that a lot of people do. I felt like early on my politics in grad school also, kind of like an old school ACLU, civil libertarian, liberal. But the more I learned about certain policy questions, especially related to immigration, where I find open borders to be very compelling, and then also, I guess, like criminal justice, where I'm very worried about criminalization of drugs or you know, gun policy. I just felt like a kind of libertarian label was like more representative of my concerns about public policy Really being a manifestation of state violence. And I'm probably part ways with a lot of libertarians is that I'm not as confident in property rights, like, you know, who owns natural resources, those types of things. But I do think that we sort of undersell often on the left, the benefits of a presumption in favor of a market exchange, because people kind of paternalistically think that people aren't the best judges of their own interests when they're engaging in the market. And I think that that's mistaken. I think that we should respect people by respecting the authority of how they act in the market and the choices they make in the market. And So while I'm not as maybe pro-capitalism <laughs> as some of my libertarian friends, I do think that it's a pretty good presumptive place to start just for autonomy-based reasons
0: one of the ways you had identified yourself was as a liberal libertarian. I guess maybe I'm just smooth brain, but I had always kind of assumed that libertarianism was kind of more affiliated with right-leaning political, you know, ideologies. So I'm wondering if you could clarify what what is liberal libertarianism? Um,
1: well, I think that when you think of Anybody's political ideology, it's very tempting to just want to put it in like a very easy category of right versus left, Republicans versus Democrats. I think that's kind of an unhealthy way to think about your political beliefs. So, in some ways, I agree with the right on certain things. So, for example, I think people have rights to own guns. I think taxes should probably be lower. I think that we should deregulate large swaths of industry. On the other hand, I disagree with the right on some things where I think that though capitalism is probably the best large scale economic system that we figured out, um, it's not like a reliable guide to people's rights to property. And for that reason, I'm more supportive of certain kinds of welfare transfers from governments. So like a basic income where the government could transfer money to everybody who has to live under capitalism as a kind of compensation for being subject to these property rules, which are enforced with violence. Um, and in that way, I kind of have more common cause with what you might think of as the left, where I'm more open to redistribution and I am much more pacifist. And I think that the main thing that we should be avoiding is domination from the government, and from the workplace. And so that's why I support things like basic income. So it doesn't really fit the way that I kind of think about politics doesn't really fit on the like left-right dichotomy. So it's liberal and it's libertarian and it fits together in my mind, but it doesn't necessarily map cleanly onto American politics.
0: And so building on that, could you give like a sketch of what are some of the main premises or tenets of sort of a libertarian worldview?
1: I would say that I mean, liber- there's so many libertarians and they all disagree with each other. And of course, like American libertarianism is like any political movement where there's a lot of division and conflict and in-group fighting. But the core of it, the core principle is that the government, when enforcing laws, is not presumptively entitled to enforce any law that isn't antecedently required by morality. So say that there, you think that there are moral requirements, as I do, and the things that we're required to do broadly is going to be nonviolence. And so don't threaten people's natural rights against interference with their physical person. Don't threaten to kidnap people. Don't harm people's like bodily integrity. Don't lie to people. Like, don't use fraud or deception to trick people into doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Basically, respect everybody's entitlement to be the author of their own lives without being interfered with that's like a pretty good theory of what morality requires. Now, if a person puts on like a police badge or a mare sash, they don't get magic powers to violate people's presumptive right against interference. It doesn't change the moral landscape in any way. And so when I said that the government is the special, that the government doesn't have any moral authority to do things that other people do, so much of what the government does is violence, and we're just sort of like, we're so blind to government violence that we don't notice how pervasively we're being threatened. But I don't think public officials have any special authority to threaten or coerce people. And the insight that libertarians have is that if you're enforcing a law that is upholding something that's not a moral requirement, you're threatening somebody with violence, but that person's not doing anything wrong. And so We should be really worried about accepting state violence for the sake of broader social goals when those broader social goals are not really required by what morality requires.
0: Um, Like when you're saying state violence or government violence, like what what does that include? What does that look like?
1: So I wrote a book about sex work. That might be a good case to talk about. So. Imagine that there's a person who is very sexually charismatic, but she lacks access to material resources. She doesn't have a lot of money to meet her basic needs. And imagine another person who has a lot of resources, but like really doesn't have like many people who want to be sexual partners with him um, that he's interested in. And so they decide they're going to trade sex for money and it looks like a win-win. And then this guy, the neighbor, someone from the neighborhood shows up and knocks on the door and he's like, um, Hey, like I heard that you were trading sex for money and um, I'm really gonna have, I really disapprove of that choice. So, you know, he pulls out a gun and he's like, come along, John, I'm going to like lock you in my basement for six weeks. You're gonna have like a big timeout from society. So you can think about what you did. Like, that would be totally out of line. But then if the neighbor is a guy named Sam who puts on a police badge and a mayor sash and he says, I took a poll and a lot of people here agree with me and they all told me that it was fine for me to do it, that doesn't change the situation. The villain in the story is still the person knocking on the door and interfering with consensual acts between adults that are really none of his business. And so when I say that the government doesn't have any special moral powers, that's what I mean is that, you know, the government doesn't get any, special entitlement to interfere with voluntary behavior and that includes paternalism um that includes regulating certain industries that includes like gun control i don't think that the government has any rights over and above what ordinary people would have in those domains
0: yeah so i think that's a pretty clear uh illustration of the principle if i could try to muddy the waters a little bit um so 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 housing is kind of a common Social determinant. Well, I don't know. You could argue if it's a social determin- determinant of health, it is a common determinant of health. So, if we were to to draw up a government program to provide free or low cost housing to, um, you know, to to medically complex people who need it, and that is funded through some sort of tax revenue, would that also be presumably an example of? state violence through like a libertarian lens because we're the, the state is kind of, you know, compelling someone to, you know, compa- compelling taxpayers to contribute to this program through tax revenue, for example.
1: Yeah, that's a great question for what we were talking about earlier when I said that I'm more sympathetic to welfare state spending than a lot of libertarians are. So how the property system is structured, I'm kind of like, look, I think it's really good to have markets, but I don't think that capitalism is like perfectly aligning with people's natural rights to property. And so that's why it's good that you can have, you know, some of the proceeds of everybody living under this property system kicked back to the people who are the most disadvantaged by the imposition of that property system. So the people who are the most low income, people who are disabled, so they're going to lack the capacity to productively participate in the property system. And we should kind of provide this social minimum for those people because it's unfair to impose on them a property system that they didn't consent to, that nevertheless they're forced to abide by, which is going to immiserate them. And so that's the case for having a very strong basic income social minimum. And then then you, your housing proposal is saying like, well, maybe part of that basic income could be paid to them in the form of housing or a housing voucher. I generally think it's better to just give people cash as much as you can, because I think that people are generally in a better position to judge how to use resources for themselves than a public official would be. So they might prefer, for example, to live with relatives or to you know, have like a housing situation that the government doesn't approve of, um, and then to use the money for some other values that they have um, to spend it in a different way than the government would say. So that's why, for example, I'm a little bit skeptical of how housing vouchers place restrictions on like the kinds of living arrangements that people can have if they want to live with domestic partners or family members. But I do think that there's something to be said about providing some kind of support for housing, whether it's just a cash transfer or a housing voucher. I do think that could be consistent with a legitimate purpose of the government, because I view that more as being under the property system and less as like paternalism.
0: So so that's one example of, you know, potential welfare program like what would be kind of the dividing line where like a an average libertarian would say, this does represent state violence or am I like, am I completely barking up the wrong tree here?
1: Well, I think typically some libertarians will say that capitalism is the closest you're going to get to the government enforcing people's natural rights to property. And I think that might be true, but I don't think it's going to align with people's natural rights to property. So like, I don't think you have a natural right to appropriate natural resources from the earth. You don't have a natural right to fiat currency, you don't have a natural right to the interest rates being set at a certain rate by the Federal Reserve. Like, There are lots of things that government does that's going to affect the value of people's holdings in a capitalist system that aren't going to correspond to people's general presumptive rights of bodily autonomy and rights against interference. Given that we live under the system that produces an extraordinary amount of wealth, the benefits of that system relative to all the other kinds of coercively imposed property systems are probably significant enough morally that we have reason to support capitalism. But that doesn't mean that like we should support capitalism in a totally unfettered, non-redistributive way. Those people who are really disadvantaged by having to live under capitalism, they deserve a kind of cut as compensation for having this forced upon them. And what I think is like that should take the form of cash unless a welfare state transfer is more efficient for well-being to the person who's the recipient than cash would be. And I think that's going to be like a really high bar. And that's why I support a basic income. But a lot of like old school libertarians also supported basic income, like Milton Friedman and Hayek. And so it's not that heterodox.
0: Okay. Because I think in, in, in my mind, like from the things I had read, I had sort of equated the concept of like state violence with a general opposition to like government sponsored welfare programs. And I don't have a citation to back that up. So I'm I'm trying to like understand sort of like, is that a real thing or am I just like getting lost in the weeds here?
1: So I mean, I think maybe like Mike Humer, who's the person who initially came up with that like Sam John sex work analogy, he is much less sympathetic to wealth redistribution. Although he even he will say that there can be some reasons for redistribution, but just like he's probably less sympathetic to it than I am um, because he's more confident that a broadly capitalist property system is gonna more closely align with people's natural rights. I mean, there are some like libertarians who are just gonna be more sympathetic to people having rights to own the land, for example, than I am. I don't think many libertarians are gonna be that sympathetic to fiat currency and intellectual property rights though. So generally the libertarian objection to the welfare state is more empirical. It's that it's very inefficient. It doesn't promote well-being as well as capitalism does. I don't think that they're coming at it from like the right angle usually.
0: But that, that reading of it to me almost feels like it bleeds into like a, an almost utilitarian argument that if yeah. we sort of agree that like, there are these principles of what a good life looks like, just empirically, the state is not the way to get to it. It is more, okay. you know, people are better pilots of their own ship captains of their own ship? I don't know, whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of in in that respect, you're sort of maybe agreeing with utilitarians.
1: Right. The libertarians that are more opposed to the welfare state, I think that often that opposition comes for empirical reasons, where they just look at the massive paternalistic government bureaucracy that is a huge drag on the economy. And they just look at what capitalism has done in terms of raising living standards and improving people's lives. And they just think like, wow, I think more of capitalism and less of the welfare state would be better for human well-being. I'm kind of more of like a rights. I mean, I I think well-being matters, but like, (laughs) but I think that we should also focus a lot more on rights. And so that's sort of how I cashed it out. But I do think some of the dispute between libertarians and kind of welfare state liberals is more just an empirical dispute.
0: Okay, so thanks for indulging that rabbit hole. With that, I think we'll try to turn more back to health. So one of the other things I'm trying to sort of tease apart is there are a lot of different ways of conceptualizing what health is, like health as a concept, okay? Is there like a a libertarian-flavored concept of what health is?
1: That's interesting. Um, libertarians will often focus a lot on autonomy and having control over your body as being a really core component of human well-being, and so I imagine that that might, in some ways, inform how people think about health within libertarianism. But of course, some libertarians are focused more on well-being, um, and then they'll think that the ability to get your preferences satisfied would be what would go into how we think about health, more of a like well-being oriented approach. So maybe they'll be more amenable to like a quality-adjusted life years conception of what it means to promote health. So, I kind of think there's like maybe two ways that you could go depending on like what flavor of libertarian you are. One would be more functional of like health consisting in the ability to pursue your projects in the world. Um, and then that's the more rights based, autonomy based conception. And then the more consequentialist libertarians, maybe they would be more sympathetic to the more welfare oriented conceptions of health, which is closer to the World Health Organizations, where it's about defining health in terms of subjective well being. So I don't know. They would probably disagree on that. I would say that. Um, so I mean, I'm not speaking the party line here, but I think that health, disability, those types of categories, that these are broad words that we use to denote a lot of different social phenomena that we're interested in. So set aside health for a moment. Take disability. Some people will have a welfareist conception of disability where they think that to be disabled just is to be under a condition that makes your life worse. Worse than it could be that your body is functioning in a way, even if it's normal species functioning, but in some ways that you would be better off if it weren't functioning. That's the welfare model. There's another model, which is disability is just a deviation from normal species functioning. There's another model, which is that a disability is an identity category. It's a mere difference in the way that your body could be that's coded socially in a way that's going to cause you to have disadvantages. And, you know, there are other accounts of disability about like, uh, disability is not just an identity category, but it's like a source of disability pride or solidarity within a political movement. And so it's politically defined. What's the right model of disability? Well, in some sense, like all of these conceptualizations of disability are useful in different contexts. So if we're thinking, where should we devote resources in medical research? Well, maybe then we should look at the welfare model because it's like, oh, we should look, we should devote resources to conditions that cause suffering. <laughs> But if we're thinking, well, what should insurance pay for when we have a lot of scarcity? Well, then maybe you want a more restricted model. And then you're going to have this kind of species functioning type view. Like maybe that is well suited for an insurance model with some caveats. But then if you're thinking like, but how should we think about anti-discrimination law? Well, then the social, more social coding type model, the social identity models, those will be more useful. And we just happen to use the word disability to capture all of these different functions that we want the concept of disability to play. And because there's no one concept of disability that serves in all of these different contexts well, it looks like we have a conceptual dispute about what the meaning of the word disability is. But actually what's going on is that there are just different kinds of priorities that we're using the same word for that are going to inform our judgments across these different contexts. But if you just kind of like disambiguate the context you're talking about, then you can kind of rig up the concept in a way that's going to be useful for you in that context. That's kind of how I feel about health as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I, I think that's something I've I've gained some appreciation of that there's a lot of, you know, kind of social weight and contextual weight to, to what health is. And it's, you know, it's not always the same thing at a point in time. And it, you know, kind of changes based on a lot of factors.
1: And also that it's determined by what we value. So like what we think of as health is, that is, in some ways, a concept that's defined by social choices and social context, based on our values. Like, what are the conditions that we think that people should insure against? What are the conditions that we think are a justified reason to call out a class? <laughs> you know, Like those types of things. Um, and then you kind of determine your conception of health based on the functional role you need that concept to play. You don't do it the opposite direction where we do like a conceptual analysis of the platonic form of what good health is. And then we just like set all of our policies based on that conceptual analysis. The conceptual analysis is lagging behind our decisions about how to make policy.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Um, to flip to another chapter, I'm wondering how how would a libertarian think about issues of of health disparities or health equity?
1: <laughs> I think it depends on how the health equities come about or health health inequities come about. So sometimes you'll have disparities in health that are a result of nature. So some people are born nearsighted, a lot of other people aren't born nearsighted. That's a health inequity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a health injustice, but just that there's that kind of disparity. If nearsightedness is just kind of randomly distributed. There are other health inequities that arise because of injustice. So disparities between different racial groups in pediatric asthma rates based on racist zoning policies that put Black communities near the highway, so they suffer from air pollution, right? That's a health inequity that you should be very concerned about because public policy has structured the built environment in a way that's causing ill health to a group of people who have already been very mistreated by the government. And so like, that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, that's a presumptively unjust health inequality, which is reflecting a broader form of injustice and inequality that's unjust. Then there's these things in the middle where it's it's not totally just like nature, but it's also like the individual's choice. It's not choices that have targeted the individual. So questions about people who take on a risky occupation. And so they take on riskier labor, which is going to endanger their health, but they're going to get other values from it. So joining the military, for example, or commercial fishing or sex work. And then the question is, to what extent do we think that these health inequalities are a problem because they arise due to background structural injustices? And to what extent do we think they're not a problem because health is only one of many values and people make different kinds of trade-offs and it could be in their overall well-being to trade off health for other types of things like, you know, people join the NFL, like they'd love to be in the NFL, right? We we don't think like, oh, like this person's trading away their health for millions of dollars and lots of glory. or <laughs> It's like, well, that's a rational decision. You can see how somebody would make that type of decision. And then, well, what about when people only trade off their health against pecuniary incentives because of background conditions of poverty? Well, then it becomes a little bit harder. So I think like when libertarians think about health inequalities, there's a set of health inequalities that they're not that concerned about, right, which is inequalities that emerge due to luck. Um I don't think that libertarians are as concerned about that kind of inequality as for example, luck egalitarians might be. And then there's a set of health inequalities that they're very concerned about, which are inequalities that emerge due to like unjust government policy. <laughs> and, like for that they're like, "Oh yeah, that we're absolutely on those types of health inequalities." In the middle, libertarians will generally be anti-paternalistic, and they'll say, we should assume that if a person is making a kind of trade off about their health and other values, that that trade off is rational for them, and that merits respect. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about the background conditions that led the person to make those types of trade offs. Those could be unjust background conditions. But it doesn't follow that in the context of those unjust background conditions that you help anybody by limiting their options for the sake of health equality.
0: Yeah, thank you for talking through that. So I know you're not the president of libertarianism, but like <laughs> as you think about kind of the diversity within that label, is that the conception you walk through, would you say that's pretty widely held as far as thinking about what things are yeah. fair or unfair?
1: Yeah. So libertarians will talk a lot about how unjust zoning policies or housing regulations that lead to health disparities are really bad or immigration restrictions. So if your life expectancy is much lower because you were born on one side of an invisible line versus the other, that that's unfair, that's like very clear about libertarianism. And inequalities that are just arising due to luck, I think that that's not generally as much on their radar. And then libertarians, I think for the most part, are going to also think that health inequalities that emerge because of people's choices for the sake of promoting health equality, that that's typically going to be an unjust form of paternalism. And libertarians are typically against paternalism.
0: (laughs) Right. One of the things you had spoken on was sort of, you know, issues of zoning or unfair policy on kind of the health determinants side of things. It sounds like that might be an area where sort of libertarian proclivities might, you know, drive real action, real change to, to shape some of those determinants. Right.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if we look at the structural determinants of health disparities, um, Number one on the list, I think, would probably be immigration restrictions, right? Just where you're born, the privilege of being born into a prosperous society versus born into a society that is less productive. And we currently have a system of immigration restrictions that traps people in countries where their health is going to be at risk. And so that's like a huge structural determinant of poor health. Then, even within a country, things like zoning regulations or housing policy or highway policy, federal transportation policy, we have built the environment in such a way that some people are going to have worse prospects health-wise uh, in virtue of just where they're born in America. And these are policy choices. These are choices of people using the government to st- systematically advantage their group, but at the disadvantage of other people. And so I feel like that's favorable to the libertarian case of being worried about government failure in these cases.
0: So we haven't gotten to these episodes yet, but some philosophical approaches argue that there is a human right to health or healthcare. What would a libertarian view of this argument be?
1: So when we say that something's a right, this is another one of those cases where we could use the word, oh, I have a right to this in different ways. But generally, if you say that something's a right, uh, people will hear that as saying that it's an enforceable right, which means that you can press a claim on somebody else where they're liable to change their behavior or to contribute resources or forfeit their property in some ways so that you can have your right be satisfied. And in that way, I don't think that healthcare is a human right. For one thing, it's not clear to me that healthcare always does promote health in the best way. If the thing we care about is health, then we should just look at what's going to promote health directly and not go through the rigmarole of medical insurance and having access to a doctor. I think we overstate the role of healthcare and promoting health. Um, and so I don't think that you have a right to access something that's only tangentially going to promote the thing that you value, which is health. But even health, like to say that, do I have a right to health? Um, who makes themselves liable to be interfered with if I have poor health? Um, so sometimes I think you do have rights-based claims that other people devote resources to promoting your health. For example, if you're suffering some injury because other people have harmed you, so like environmental toxins. um, In those types of cases, I think that people could have a kind of right of reparation to have resources that are gonna restore their health at least to the level of whatever injury they suffered because of environmental toxins. But do you have a right against other people to provide you with better health if your health disparities are just a result of bad luck, like the nearsight in this case, I don't know. I don't see why other people would forfeit their own rights just in virtue of this. And now I, that's a separate question of whether people should, like, I think people should donate some of their income to charity or help those who are worst off. But I don't know that people are liable to be coerced for the, for the sake of providing the benefit of health even. So is healthcare, a right? Definitely not healthcare because like, that's like a long walk from healthcare to health. And then is health a right? Well, only in certain cases is health, is even health gonna be a right, I think.
0: So, one of the things I struggle with is how we should think about those cases that fall in a gray area. So, someone dumps a couple barrels of toxic waste in your backyard and you suffer some kind of health consequence. They are obviously responsible for making you whole. But how many steps can we take away from that kind of obvious situation before whatever responsibility dissipates? into those background social conditions that a libertarian might not see as legitimate.
1: Well, that's another case where it's like these are the trade-offs, where it's like the more you want to interfere with people for the promotion of other people's health, right, there's always going to be some presumptive wrongfulness for interfering with a person who's not liable to be interfered with. And so like to the extent that a person is liable to be interfered with, I think that it's fine to interfere with them so that you can promote another person's health. That's like suing the environmental toxin spiller, right? They're liable. I think it's pretty hard to explain how people are liable to be interfered with if a health disparity is genuinely bad luck, but also if a health disparity is a person's choice, even if that choice was made because of background conditions of bad luck. I think at some point, what it is to hold people responsible and to respect them is to, to say like, yeah, like you made this choice and like, this is the outcome of it. And at the time, that was the thing that made the most sense to you to do. And like, yeah, I'm going to defer to you that this was in your interest. And this was that like, you made a rational trade off by putting your health at risk for the sake of other kinds of benefits. And like other people are making trade offs in different ways. But I don't know that that's the kind of thing that merits any kind of redress.
0: OK, so within those libertarian views, how would one think about addressing those health disparities that are seen as legitimate from a libertarian point of view?
1: Right. So there's always going to be a trade-off in any kind of health system where you're going to be trying to address health inequality, right? So in America, you think, well, we have a private market in all sorts of medical services that's like floating above the public provision of healthcare care, which is Medicare, Medicaid, veterans' benefits. And sometimes people who are critical of libertarianism will say like, look, we spend so much money on the private sector on medical care and we don't get better health outcomes and we don't get more health equality than other countries. But also we spend a comparable amount on the public sector on healthcare care as other countries. And we also don't get like we cover fewer people. So, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits is a comparable share of GDP as the whole share of GDP devoted to health spending in countries that have universal health care. And so I think sometimes libertarians will look at those programs and think like, I don't know, should we be giving more money to this system that is getting worse outcomes for the same percentage of GDP? And then if you want to limit the private market for the sake of health equality, you encounter an objection in philosophy that's called the leveling down objection, which is that it could be the case that you... Prevent people from accessing high quality care on the private market, but you don't actually get meaningful benefits for the worst off by by limiting that access to care. So like we could ban all sorts of you know private payment systems. We should make, we could have price fixing for doctors or for pharmaceuticals. And that would lead to a kind of deadweight loss in productivity in the medical sector. And it might not get real meaningful benefits for the people that you're trying to help. And often libertarians will, look at these types of trade-offs and they'll cite things like, you know, the Oregon Medicaid study or Medicaid expansion, where it's true that there are some benefits to Medicaid expansion, like people have more money and they're like less stressed about medical bills, but you're not getting huge bang for your buck in health outcomes. And so in general, a lot of the things that people who are concerned about health equity are proponents of like universal healthcare or price caps on drugs, those types of things have real risks by limiting people's access to care in the marketplace, potentially introducing wait times, produce, potentially introducing medical scarcity, maybe deterring innovation. And it's not clear that our health system, as currently constituted through the public provider end, is really equipped to provide meaningful benefits to the people that they're trying to provide benefits for by intervening in the market in these ways. And so, like, intervening with the market is very, very dangerous. There could be many risks associated with it, especially for America, where our pharmaceutical innovation and our private care market is driving medical benefits that have positive externalities for the rest of the world. Like intervening in that private market in America for the sake of health equity could undermine health globally. They could have these big negative effects. And I don't think that like the public providers have really proven themselves equipped to address health equity currently with the system of Medicaid and veterans benefits. So like, should we be pouring more money into that system, which is like not effectively delivering care, even though it's spending a comparable amount of GDP as places that have universal health care that covers everybody? So that's kind, of, that's kind of a long answer for what would be the take on health equity and policy.
0: So, so, so I understand the reservations on sort of putting more money into the, the, the current system. Is there a conception of sort of like what the alternative would be or that's still kind of TBD?
1: Um, Michael Cannon is at Cato and he's like their health policy guy and he's libertarian. And I mean, he'll say it as well. Like there's really like no great options for having a healthcare system. That's going to give you everything you want. It's only going to be about trade-offs. And the question is like, how do we make these trade-offs where we can get as much of the benefit from markets and medical services as possible while also providing coverage to people who need care. And there's different proposals out there. One is John Cochran is a health policy economist guy, uh, and he goes by the Grumpy Economist. He likes this idea of having guaranteed renewable lifetime health insurance in the private market for everybody that also includes a kind of health status insurance, like an insurance against people's health status changing in the future. A lot of people like the Singapore system, a lot of libertarians will be okay with Kaiser, right? Kaiser is a pretty like median voter efficient form of healthcare that people can buy into that delivers fairly high quality care at a pretty affordable price. And then you can have private market for insurance or private market for supplemental medical services just floating above that. So it's not like people are like, let's not do anything about healthcare, but it is that they're more skeptical of systems like, for example, Canada, Health Canada or the NHS.
0: All right. So I wanted to ask if you have any closing thoughts to put a bow on these themes.
1: Yeah, I would emphasize that libertarians are just making trade-offs in the health sector and the things that they advocate for in different ways from other people. And so, you know, how much regulation are you willing to tolerate within a market in order to provide consumer safety, knowing that regulation could also be so excessive that it deters innovation? And we see this with the drug space. So like, If we make it easier to get a drug approved, we might see more innovation in that sector. But you might also see more dangerous drugs hitting the marketplace. Libertarians will be more optimistic about the ability of the market to correct for those types of dangers than about the ability of public officials to preemptively screen out dangers effectively, weighing the risks of regulatory delay or deterring innovation. And it's just like maybe you're a person who is more confident in the capacities of the government and less confident in the benefits of the market. And so you're going to make that trade-off in a different way. But what's important in these conversations about healthcare is to acknowledge that these are really meaningful trade-offs and that even if you are a person who's like more favorable towards government intervention in the health sector, that you're going to have to justify that choice in terms of less innovation, longer wait times, you know, um, people having to navigate a difficult bureaucratic system that costs a lot of time for people to manage. So, you know, it's just difficult to make those types of trade-offs. And I think libertarians in general will have an orientation to think that whatever the problems you see in the market, those are problems with humans being humans. But like, Public officials, people of the government, they also have their own screwed up incentives that are going to make, so that they don't make the most socially optimal decision. And so, you know, yep, there's a danger with the market. There's a danger with market failure, but there's also serious problems and concerns about government failure. And for something that's as important as people's health, given the risks of government failure, it's not good to have a system that ties people's hands so that there's only one game in town when it comes to access to care.
0: Thanks, Jess. I'd like to briefly highlight two things from that conversation before we move on to talk with Michael. The first thing I'd highlight is Jess's comment that her values don't map strictly onto a left-right continuum, and that doing so can be kind of an
1: unhealthy way to think about your political beliefs.
0: I think for me, i had always assumed that libertarian beliefs mapped completely onto the American right, which is clearly not the case. The old axiom that assuming makes an ass of you and me probably applies here for me, and may apply to you as well. The second thing I'd point out is Jess's reference to luck egalitarianism, which we will be coming back to in our eighth episode. Next, we'll be meeting Michael Cannon of the Cato Institute. Hi, Michael.
2: Hi, my name is Michael Cannon. I am an economist and director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute.
0: Awesome. And then uh, I'm wondering if maybe you could tell me a story about how you got where you are, how you figured out that whatever you're doing is, is what you want to do.
2: My career arc, I think, is interesting because it tells something, really tells us something really interesting about the debate over health reform in the United States. I entered the world of politics and public policy uh, as a libertarian. That's how I identified myself uh, when I graduated college or shortly thereafter, and I began to work at a libertarian organization in a menial administrative job that I hated. And I just wanted to work on policy so much that I begged the policy shop, you got to hire me away from this terrible job. And they said, okay, we like what you've written for us. We'll offer you a position, but the only position that's open is in health policy. And we have to tell you why that position is open. It's because nobody else wants it. I said, I don't care, I'll take it. I knew nothing about health policy. I had not studied it as an undergraduate. I got a political science degree. Uh, I I knew, you know, I picked up, I'd taken economics courses and then picked up a lot of economics on the streets, Uh, but I knew knew, um, almost nothing about health policy, Uh, but that's how I got in. And not only, and and now 25 years later, I'm still doing health policy and very glad that I am. I, I, I love the issue. A little obsessed with it and uh the interesting thing about that that arc i think is that every time i talk to someone on the free market side of the health reform debate and i don't mean and here i mean uh libertarians who work in health policy and free market conservatives who work in health policy. And I hasten to qualify that because there are a lot of conservatives who work in health policy who, are, who do not advocate free markets. But every time I talk to one of the free market people, and even some of the non-free market conservatives, uh, uh, and there's not that many of them, uh, their stories are very similar to mine. They did not get into public policy to do health care. They got into public policy to expand freedom or in the case of conservative traditional values or whatever, and healthcare is the job that was open. There is a huge disparity, you might say, inequity between the free market side and what I'll call the government interventionist side, because left and right don't really map well onto, onto that. But the free market side versus the, the government interventionist side, uh, on, the, on the government interventionist side, generally what we might call the left, people get into healthcare or people get into public policy because they want to work on healthcare. They, uh, that's what draws them to politics and public policy because they want to work on that issue. That does not happen, almost never, on the free market side. I I am to change that, to correct that inequity. But when young people listen to healthcare debates, it's really important for them to understand that there is this asymmetry, not just how people come to work in health policy, but also that the free market side is so small that the government interventionist side outnumbers it at least 99 to 1 because of that dynamic of people on the left being more interested in this issue. That doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that we're right, that we're the minority either. But most of the debates that you hear, they tilt heavily toward the government intervention side, the people who believe in government intervention. And and what's true of the health policy debate in the health policy world in Washington, D.C. is even more true of academia. Public health schools, public policy schools, even economics departments uh, although they skew less toward government intervention than than these other areas, there's still a huge asymmetry there. And, and so that's, that's I think, an important thing for people to understand that my career kind of illuminates uh, is that whenever you are listening to health reform debates or just learning about health policy or public health in your uh, undergraduate and graduate courses, you are more than 99 times out of 100, hearing from someone who has a very pro-government intervention or left-of-center perspective, and it really takes effort to, to find someone who, who will present a cogent free market perspective. And I like to think that I do that. I don't think I did that for the first few years of my career in health. Policy, but uh, I also want to applaud you for uh, trying to provide that perspective in this podcast. Well,
0: thank you. We we all we all do what we can. I guess the one the one other disclosure I would make is this is a uh, a bobblehead of Elizabeth Warren, which may give some sense of where kind of my personal uh, proclivities on on government intervention fall.
2: So I I think Elizabeth Warren is wrong about everything in healthcare, like crazy wild wrong. Like you try to find an equivalent of how wrong she is on the right. uh, You know, what what is the rights equivalent of how wrong the Medicare for all crowd is? And it's like nation building. You have to come up with something like that, that has failed over and over and over again, but by God, they still believe in this idea. If we just nation build more, or if we, you know, Donna Shalala who ran Medicare for Bill Clinton said, she's never met anyone who supports Medicare for all who understands the program. But they still say, God, if we just Medicaid or if we just Medicare harder, then, then everything will be fine. But I will say this for Elizabeth Warren and every other Medicare for all supporter, they care more about healthcare than just about not just the median Republican, but maybe 95 or more percent of Republicans do. I wish. That the free market side in Congress, and and that's a small subset of Republicans. I wish there were an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders of free market healthcare, but there just isn't.
0: Yeah, so so I guess digging into that a bit more, like, is there is there something you you would point to as to why there's that asymmetry? You know, as far as interest in health,
2: absolutely. This is something I think a lot about. I've given a lot of thought and I'm trying to, to correct this imbalance by addressing the root problems. The root cause here is that the US health sector is already so heavily socialized. The government dominates it so much. The government already runs healthcare so much and subsidizes healthcare. And so many people are dependent on government for their health care that when free market advocates come up with free market ideas and take those to Congress and uh, try and take those to the state. Uh, legislature and try to get policymakers to enact them. It is so easy to frighten people about those proposals because uh, you're throwing grandma off a cliff. If you want to reduce Medicare spending or expand choices in Medicare, you're you're denying health care to vulnerable seniors. You are taking health care away from them to give money to greedy insurance companies. You're denying health care to the elderly to give tax cuts to the rich. The advocates of those programs are so adept at demagoguing free market reforms, it's hard to push back against those sorts of misrepresentations. And, and really, the fault is on the free market side for not developing, understanding and deploying an effective response. But Democrats the the, le- the left generally the pro interventionist side has been so adept at beating back those proposals that that the free market side in legislatures at the state and federal level have broadly speaking republicans have said we don't want to do healthcare we keep losing elections when we try to touch healthcare and then that creates a structural problem if you don't have policymakers who will carry your ideas forward in state capitals or the national capital that it's hard to get Young libertarians, free market conservatives, to go into public policy to work on healthcare because you're not going to have any champions. No one's going to advance your ideas, and so the the libertarians and the, the free market advocates don't go into healthcare. They go into uh, regulatory policy or monetary policy, something where they could have more of an effect where there will be champions for their ideas. And then what does that create? In the healthcare debate, it creates a vacuum. And so then what do the few conservatives and even libertarians who work in health policy have to do? They have to trim their sails so much uh, and, and try, to, try to, to come up with ideas that appeal to these gun-shy Republicans so much that they end up advocating not free market ideas, but they get pulled in the direction of ideas that expand government. And the paradigmatic example of this is Obamacare. Obamacare was an idea that the Conservative Heritage Foundation championed for decades while folks at the Cato Institute, actual free market advocates at the Cato Institute were saying, this is a terrible idea. You should not do this. Stop. Please stop advocating this. Someone's going to pick up this idea and run with it and make it law. But all of this regulation and the individual mandate, which is essentially a government takeover, private health insurance, cut it out. It's bad for consumers. And once someone enacts it, it's going to be very hard to get rid of. But you know, nature abhors a vacuum. The Heritage Foundation had to say something. They wanted to give Republicans something that they could push for. And there's a, always an audience in Washington for expanded government. And so that's how we got Obamacare, is eventually Democrats looked at that and said, hey, you know what? We can work with this. And th- that helped Obamacare get across the finish line. So part of the work that I do at the Cato Institute is to try to correct that structural Uh, imbalance, that structural problem that has led to so few people entering public policy on the free market side, and so few champions for free market ideas among policymakers.
0: So to to drill into that a little bit, I I have some conception of what free market means. I, I think it would probably be helpful if you could sort of, from your perspective, say sort of like, what is a free market?
2: So... Generally speaking, a free market is a market where buyers and sellers can exchange money for whatever services uh, they choose to without the government intervening and saying, we're going to impose rules on your exchanges, on your transactions uh, that, that limit your freedom to choose what you're going to buy and sell and at what price. And I think a free market is an incredibly important. To have in healthcare, because one way that I do kind of agree with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is that we do have rights when it comes to our healthcare. And our most important healthcare right is the right to make our own health decisions. And when the government intervenes in the health sector of the economy and says, no, you can't do that transaction and no, you can't charge that price, then the government is interfering with our right to make our own health decisions. Uh, Obvious examples are when the Food and Drug Administration tells terminally ill patients, no, you can't try that drug because we haven't tested it enough. Well, you know, this is a, this is someone who's going to die and is looking for some way to save their lives. And the government is intervening and in taking away their right to make their health care decisions by saying, no, 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 you're going to have to stick to those treatments that you know don't work, that we both know don't work, because we will not let you buy this drug from a willing seller and... Use it to see if if it'll save your life. We saw lots of people protesting that infringement of of people's fundamental health care rights and then asserting their rights by breaking the law during the AIDS epidemic when people would go to Mexico to buy drugs that were not approved in the United States. And there's analogs to that even today. And another example is, say, a low-income person is really having a hard time making rent, feeding her family, and paying for the medical care that her children need. And that person would have a much easier time getting primary care from an independent practice nurse practitioner. But her state government says, no, that's illegal. Some states allow it. Others say, no, that's illegal. The government there is taking away her right to choose her own healthcare provider. And in the former case with the FDA, the FDA is taking away your right to make your own health decision with potentially very harmful health consequences. In the latter case of nurse practitioners, the state licensing authorities are taking away your rights in a way that makes healthcare more expensive for that woman and her family. And though these regulations the people put them in place have good intentions, they not only take away our rights, they end up reducing access to care and reducing the quality of care. That patients receive. And that's why it's so important to have a free market in healthcare so that patients can make those decisions for themselves. There's no evidence that nurse practitioners provide lower quality care within their scope of practice than physicians do. But let's say that there were some quality trade-off. That mother has the right to make that choice about whether that trade-off is worth it for her family. She's going to make a better decision than some distant regulator who's under the influence of the physician lobby is going to make.
0: So we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves with this discussion of free markets. Could you walk us through how you define libertarianism?
2: So libertarianism is the idea that that you have a right to live your life however you want as long as you respect the equal rights of others. And as long as you're doing that, the government should just totally leave you alone, let you trade with whomever you want, let you love and marry whomever you want, let you be whatever gender you want to be. And there should be a government, but, its role should be limited to protecting you from people who would try to harm you through force or fraud. So that's libertarianism, in a the nutshell, there's a lot more we could say about that. From my perspective, and there might be other libertarians who disagree with this, I think that libertarianism is a follows naturally and is a necessary implication of a devotion to egalitarianism. So if you believe that human beings are valuable, as I do, and if you believe that human beings all are equal, they have equal dignity, they have equal rights, my claim, and this is a strong claim, is that you should then support a libertarian society. And the reason for that is there are lots of forms of inequality in the world, including some that, that, that I don't like, some that you don't like. Maybe there's overlap between the types that you and I don't like. Maybe there's some kinds that you, you would tolerate more than I would, or vice versa. I think, though, that we should be able to agree that the worst form of inequality comes from power when people can use force, physical force the threat of physical force or fraud lying to you or deceiving you in other ways to overcome your will. You know, Jeff Bezos and I are not equals. He's a bazillionaire. You know, he can buy and sell me several times. He could, um, uh, he, he could, he could mess with me in all sorts of ways if he wanted to just because he's got so much money, but I don't actually fear him as much as I fear my local police because the, the, the inequality that exists between jeff bezos and me which is real is not as great as the inequality that exists between a police officer and me because if jeff bezos decided that he wanted to rough me up well i could go to the police you know that's illegal for him to do that and there's some remedy the if a if a police officer wanted to do that it, it, i would the remedy would be much less certain now, you might say that Jeff Bezos you know, could hire the best lawyers and buy off the police or that sort of thing, and that is a very real concern. But let's take it all the way up to the top. The inequality that exists between Joe Biden and me is much greater than the inequality that exists between Jeff Bezos and me, because Joe Biden has the power to order the FBI to conduct no-knock raids against people, maybe against me. Uh, Joe Biden has all sorts of power that, uh, by virtue of being the chief executive in this massive, sprawling federal government with all sorts of powers, that that form of inequality, that I think should trouble us more than, say, economic inequality, is, is is a real problem. And if you are an egalitarian, then you should try to reduce those power disparities when it comes to physical violence and overcoming another's will through physical violence or fraud, uh, even more than uh, economic disparities, and one of the nice things that happens is if you do that, then economic disparities may exist, they may persist, they may even grow. But when you pull the government back so that it is not regulating the economy, uh, so that it, and and not ruining lives through the drug war and uh, other interventions that we could talk about. Then what ends up happening is the living standards of the people we care about the most, the people at the margins, vulnerable, low-income people, including in healthcare, the sick, their outcomes improve because we are allowing the, the processes that I described before, the processes of a, of, a, of a free market to develop innovations that offer something people something better than what they have today and leaving people free to choose and experiment with those innovations so that, so that they can... Access better, more affordable healthcare, and render judgment on those innovations, so that the good ones stay and the ones that don't work disappear. If de- devotion to equality is uh, something that is important to us, we should we should all be libertarians. We should demand that government limit its role in our lives just to protecting our uh, life, liberty, and property from force and fraud.
0: Yeah. So I think I follow that. I'm wondering if you could maybe sketch out, you know, what does that world look like? It's kind of hard, given what we spoke to earlier, like the government is such a large part of, uh, you know, it's so enmeshed in the delivery and funding of care. It's kind of hard to imagine a different way. Like, is do you have a vision? Would you look like, are you looking to how like another country has their health system set up? Sort of what is that, you know, to you, what does that world look like?
2: So the question I get most often and have gotten most often in 25 or whatever years I've been working in health policy is what country comes closest to a libertarian health sector or to a, a libertopian society where there's maximum freedom in healthcare and free markets and all that? It troubles and embarrasses me to say that I still don't have a good answer to that because no one, I don't think anyone has really done that work. And I'm trying to do some of that work at Cato so that we can answer that question. It's certainly not the United States. But if you want to know what a libertarian society would look like, it, it looks a lot like the United States right now. We have vastly more freedom than just than existed just one or two generations ago, to, to say nothing of a hundred or two hundred years ago. There's vastly more freedom for uh minorities in the United States, racial minorities, sexual minorities. And while there have we have lost some freedoms when it comes to being able to make our own health decisions. Uh, you know, an example is the additional powers that the Congress gave to the FDA in 1962 that make it harder for people to exercise the right to access the medicines they want because the FDA is blocking so many more medicines before they come onto the market. There are also gains in freedom uh, when it comes to our healthcare. Over the past hundred years, there has been an effort, a campaign, a war waged by uh, medical ethicists, patients' rights advocates, to get doctors to adopt and live by the doctrine of informed consent. Within my lifetime, doctors thought it was okay to lie to patients. They thought it was okay to withhold information from patients because they thought patients couldn't make these decisions themselves. And it is the widespread adoption of the doctrine of informed consent is a huge gain in freedom. Because now if a physician violates that doctrine, does not provide you informed consent, then you can go to the government to hold them accountable for that.
0: Yeah, so, so I think one of the threads I'm, I'm really picking up is how, how sort of government can restrict or impair freedom. I think as, as we think about kind of issues of health, that that's certainly one, one source of restriction. I think you could also say there are sort of like some social forces that may restrict freedom as well. So if we kind of take a case of someone who lives in a neighborhood without access to, you know, high quality food, it's not safe, they can't exercise, so maybe they're at higher risk for, you know, some kinds of, you know, some kinds of chronic diseases. So I guess a question would be like, would a libertarian look at that as, you know, sort of an infringement on personal freedom or would they look at that differently?
2: So the way I look at that as an economist is this person has uh, needs or wants that their current environment cannot provide, their current neighborhood cannot provide safety access to uh, affordable food, that sort of thing. And apparently, I, I assume from your hypothetical, doesn't have the resources to get themselves to a better place. So I don't see that as a restriction of freedom. It might be an equity issue because this person does not have as much money as you or I do to be able to afford to live in a safe neighborhood where stores are plentiful, that sort of thing. So, So that person not having the resources available to them is a problem. I would not say that not having resources is a restriction on their freedom. When I use freedom, what I'm talking about is, and I think when most uh, political philosophers use the term, what they're talking about is freedom from physical restraint by other humans. So not having enough money, uh, by that definition, doesn't make you less free. But in, I think in every instance where we encounter that problem in the United States, probably in other countries, you can find ways that the government is infringing on their freedom, That is putting them in that situation or preventing them from escaping that situation. One obvious example is zoning. When local governments or state governments get into the business of deciding who can build where, what ends up happening is sort of the same thing that happens when physicians capture the regulatory processes that are supposed to regulate them and nurses, or when drug companies capture the regulatory processes that are supposed to regulate them they use those processes really to block competition from their competitors and, uh, and to maintain their market position. And the same sort of thing happens when it comes to government regulation of who can build houses and where they can build them. You have pe- property owners who want to maintain their property values by limiting who can build low-income housing where. And you miss out on innovations in low-income housing, people being able to build low-income housing in safer neighborhoods uh, because of those owning restrictions. And r- restriction on the freedom of builders, those entrepreneurs, and on those low income workers who would like to trade with those entrepreneurs by buying or renting one of those properties that, they, that zoning is preventing them from building. Zoning takes away the freedom of both parties. So, already we've identified one example of government taking away people's freedom that is contributing to that person being stuck in that unsafe neighborhood. Another example is you know, I want everyone to have health insurance. That doesn't mean that I want the government to tax people to provide them health insurance, nor do I want the government to penalize people unless they enroll in employer-sponsored insurance. One of the reasons I don't want the government to to do those things is because that leaves our friend in that low-income neighborhood with less control over his own earnings. There's a provision in the federal tax code, and state tax codes mimic this provision, that says if you get health insurance through an employer, it's tax-free. Employers, though, pay for that uh, insurance by reducing wages. So what that does is it presents workers with a with a, with a a choice, and it's not always a transparent choice, but this is how it works out in the labor market. Either you let an employer control a big chunk of your money. We're talking thousands, maybe $7,000 if you're a single. A big chunk of your money and use it to purchase health insurance for you, or you opt out of that plan and get nothing, or you go to work for an employer that doesn't offer health insurance and offers you that $7,000 in cash, but you have to pay taxes on it. So if your biggest problem is not health insurance or even if you just want health insurance that's less comprehensive than what your employer offers you cannot make the trade off yourself between health insurance and housing by taking that money and spending it as you would be able to in a free market the government penalizes you if you want to spend that money on housing rather than health insurance it would be nice if the if the tax rate were lower because that's the implicit penalty because the penalty would be smaller but really The government should not be penalizing you at all, and yet that is one of the things that's contributing to that low-income worker being stuck in that neighborhood. And we could keep on uh, going and find lots and lots of other ways that government, uh, local, state, and federal, infringe on that worker's freedom in political, concrete, physical force sort of ways. In other words, you you violate this regulation, we're going to fine you. If you don't pay the fine, you go to jail, that are contributing to those inequities that trouble you so much. I think they stem from the power inequalities that trouble me so much.
0: Thanks for that, Michael. So with that, let's see what the oversimplicator prints out as a conception of health equity from a libertarian point of view. Okay, so it says, libertarianism seeks to minimize disparities that arise from the actions of other people, particularly from actions of the government. Actions to achieve equity would be governed by consideration of cost effectiveness. Let's now turn to our robust practical understanding of health equity. First, one of the unifying threads I heard between what Jess and Michael said is the notion that the individual is best able to make decisions about the way they live their lives. This seems like an unarguably true thing and is a thing my nine-year-old son, Austin, tells me nearly every time I ask him to clean up his room. As a proto-libertarian, he asserts that it is his right to live in a messy room if that is how he prefers to live. It is perhaps fitting, then, that libertarians refer to the infringement of this right to self-determination as paternalism, which is derived from the word paternal meaning of or related to a father. So, thanks libertarianism, but Austin, you still need to clean your room. Oh, come on! Second, I'd really underscore the importance of informed consent that Michael talked about. I think in our current reality, where every medical encounter begins with a stack of consent forms, it's an easy thing to take for granted. This isn't to say that fully informed consent is achieved in every medical encounter, but it's a norm and a goal. American medical history is chock-a-block full of egregious violations of informed consent, often perpetrated against socially marginalized groups. Third, while we didn't directly talk about it with Jess and Michael, I think another health equity value implied by libertarian worldview is the notion of transparency. In a free market, a person should be able to know the quality of the thing they're buying, whether that's a car or the services of a doctor. This view has led to a range of report cards and quality measures that evaluate individual providers, hospitals, payers, and any other health entity you can think of. Fourth, and perhaps most importantly, government is not universally good. For me, as someone with an Elizabeth Warren bobblehead on my bookshelf, this was a hard truth to swallow. Jess makes this point really directly in her discussion of, quote,
1: disparities, between different racial groups in pediatric asthma rates based on racist zoning policies that put black communities near the highway so that they suffer from air pollution.
0: Libertarians would be infuriated by historic sentinel events like the Tuskegee syphilis study and modern events such as the Flint water crisis. In Flint, a government egregiously mismanaged its infrastructure to the point that it poisoned thousands of citizens and then the local government attempted to cover up that situation and gaslight their way out of a public health crisis. Mark Edwards, the civil engineer and water scientist who rode shotgun with Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha in uncovering the crisis is described as having a libertarian streak. To end this episode on a less serious note, we're going to revisit Philosophy's a Joke, featuring Google Bard, where I asked Google Bard, the large language model AI, to make up a joke about the subject of the episode. Google Bard is a can't-miss comedian because the joke is either really good or even better, the joke is really bad, and then Google Bard has to explain why it's funny. And as I always say, the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. So here is Google Bard's joke about libertarianism.
2: Why did the libertarian cross the road? To get to the other side. Dot 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 without government intervention. This joke is funny because it plays on the libertarian belief in limited government. It suggests that libertarians are so opposed to government intervention that they would even go to great lengths to avoid it, even if it means crossing a busy road.
0: So that's it. Join the conversation on Twitter at practiceinequity, that's practicing without the G, because we like to keep it casual. And subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question, comment, or correction for me, email practicesayinghealthequity at gmail.com. Last but not least, tell all your public health nerd friends to tune in and subscribe. Take care. On our next episode, we will be discussing the first of our egalitarian philosophies, justice as fairness. And here's a brief preview.
2: You can't know the nature of a thing apart from how it expresses itself under the most favorable conditions. You don't know that an acorn is really an oak tree if you just leave it on the pavement.